Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another edition of Front Porch Conversation on Justice, where we get down to the real issues of the day and we talk about those social issues and restorative justice issues and reconciliation and, and peace in the community with guests from all over the United States and various corners of the country. And we want to get down to those topics that are germane to our community. So today we're going to be talking with Cheryl Miller. Cheryl is in Victoria, Texas, and and Cheryl has quite a bit to talk to us about in terms of shalom and reconciliation circles and affecting transformative community dialogue. And so we want to get into that. And not only will we be talking to Cheryl, we'll be talking to Summer Shine, and Summer will be on uh, about 30 minutes into the hour. Uh, and we will talk about some things around a, a fantastic entrepreneurship program. So, Cheryl, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So, I know the audience wants to know something about you because they probably want to know why did I choose Cheryl Miller out of all the people in the United States to, to come on this show to talk about taking a leap with this quantum circles? Well, I'm not sure why you did, but I'm glad you did. Um, So why Cheryl Miller? Yeah, why Cheryl? Well, um, to be honest with you, probably about the past 15 years of my life has really been drawing deeper and deeper reconciliation and dialogue. And I worked for an organization for a while, but then just recently I realized that I just wanted to make a change, and and I decided in January to to make the transition and launch my own business, and so that's what I started Quantum Circles Consulting and Training this past January. So what were you doing before then? Well, prior to that, I actually was working at an organization called Perpetual Hope Home here in Victoria, Texas, which is we're a smaller community. Um, we're about 65,000 people, and uh, Perpetual is a housing program for women, and it started out being women coming out of the jail, but over the years, it's just transitioned to women in any kind of hardship circumstances, and typically, it was mostly women with, uh, we, we served homeless women and, you know, women coming out of jail or prison, but the population we tended to served the most. It wasn't exclusive. The most was people with really long-term substance abuse issues. Um, and those, and that was also the population that we tended to be the most effective with. And I worked there for 18 years as a director. So how did you get into uh, the, the reconciliation? I know, I know my introduction to you was with the reconciliation circles uh, last year here in um, in Newport News, Hampton area. Uh, how did you get into that? How did that come about in, in relation to your work? Um, because when I started working at Special Health, and, uh, you know, because they were working with women coming out of jail, the, the director that I replaced had been asked to speak at a restorative justice conference on reentry. She was on a panel about reentry. And since she had gone, and she, since she resigned and I took her place, I had to go to that conference. And it was at that conference as I was walking around, and I had only been working there about three or four months, at section, and I saw a booth for a program called Victim Offender Mediation Dialogue. And prior to the Health Club, I had been a 
elementary school teacher, but we did peer mediation in the school, so I had training in mediation. Was really drawn to the work of mediation. And so when I saw victim offender mediation dialogue, I was very caught by that. Uh, one of them because the word mediation was in there, but because it was victim and offender. And I was working with formerly incarcerated or ex-offenders, whatever term you know is appropriate. And so it really appealed to me to think that maybe I could be a part of something that was addressing crime from both hearing for that program that same year. So for 17, about, about 16 years, I was criminal justice doing victims of violent crime and their offenders in prison. So about, gosh, it was actually like the first mediation that I did. It was, the, it was between the mother whose child had been murdered and one of the men who killed her child. Um, one, that mediation is the program particularly the offender to the way more so the victim by going through that process of having that direct voice and really being able to engage i was i just kept thinking gosh this is so powerful and transformative is there a way to transfer this concept these concepts into another context and so for about seven or eight years we spent you know, I was working at the Texas Help Home. You know, we really tried to figure out is there is it possible to infuse those principles into the community development work that we were doing, and we found out that you could. And after a while, we started seeing increased impact, increased transformation. And after even a little bit longer, uh, somebody encouraged me I should write a book, and I wrote the book language about convergence of mediation, restorative justice, and community development. Okay. Uh, this is for our audience. Uh, we may be having a little communication problem with uh, Cheryl then, because she, uh, being out in, uh, in the country there, or halfway country, uh, there may be some cell tower issues there, but, uh, uh, but we'll deal with it as, as we go along. And it, you were talking about the book that you, you wrote, um, uh, to to guide people along in the process. Uh, I know that uh, because of you, we, we started this uh, circle group with mothers of children who were murdered uh, here in the Hampton and Newport News area. And, and as you say, it's really a transformative time. Uh, and it probably, as some of the mothers stated, it really got to a place that they haven't been even through uh grief groups and other types of groups they've been into. Um, uh, and because of, of that, which you introduced, we're, we're able to, um, to take them further and deeper into what they need and find that healing and also so that they can go into communities themselves and be advocates to, 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 to turn this tide of violence the other way uh, to, to get to the kids and parents out there that, that the community can start is self-healing from within. Uh, have Have you done much of this circle training uh, since you into the the real world and working for yourself? Um, I've done a few. I've done a few. Um, there's, you know, um, I work with. I have a contract and work with uh, the continuing education department at Baylor University. And so we did a training in Waco this spring and we, we've done some here locally and we have a few scheduled coming up. So, yeah, um, it tends to be the, 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 it, that tends to be, especially that, that initial training tends to be the most popular thing, which is part of the reason why I decided to go ahead and launch the business because I was getting enough positive response and request for people to learn how to do these processes and how to implement these tools and, and be more effective. And so I thought, you know, this is a good time to, to start this. There's never been a time where our, our society needed help in having conversations better than there is right now. And so, so yeah, I've done a few, and I hopefully plan on doing a lot more. Yeah. Well, we know you're coming this way in, in um, September uh, to do a uh, – a, a workshop, a two and a half day workshop here with some folks uh, in 
and we're going to hold that in Richmond. Tell us about what that's going to entail. What 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 would people come in there looking forward to and walk out of there with? Well, there's two things that I really hope to always accomplish in every single training that I do. One of the things is that I hope that people walk out seeing seeing whatever concerns they had when they came in, their community, what, you know, family, whatever, just seeing the world, seeing those situations and and in some ways the world differently. Uh, because it really is a shift in the way you view things, in the way you view interactions, in the way you view community, when you when you move to a more of a community development restorative justice model. And so, so one thing that I hope people will accomplish is they it changes the way they approach things, the way they view the view the work that they do. The second thing that I hope everybody comes out of that training with is a number of tools in their tool belt. We, you know, we. We think we're good at communications oftentimes, and we really aren't as good as we think we are. And there are proven research practices out there in the field of mediation, the field of restorative justice, and those tools can be taught, and they can be transferred into other contexts, and they can just make us more effective. And so it just really is about bringing, giving you kind of an arsenal of different tools you can use in different situations to really be able to impact whatever work you're doing. And it's not limited to any particular field. And so, I mean, you know, we've trained HR people in the past. We've trained, you know, churches in the past. We've trained, you know, nonprofits in the past. And so it really and, – and, and there's even business people now that are starting to look at some of these principles as, you know, as the way of addressing work conflict in the workplace. And so, so that's the main two things is to really see the world differently and, and coming out with tools. Yeah, yeah. But what about getting in the community to the folks who, the everyday folks that are living in the community? How, how would it benefit them? Well, I mean, when it comes to when it comes to communication, that's an everyday process that is involved in every part of our life. So, in any way that you're interacting with human beings, you're communicating. And so, learning tools that increase your capacity to communicate better is going to enhance everything. It's going to enhance whatever work you do. It's going to enhance the way you interact with your family. I know when I went through mediation training and when I went through restorative justice training, the way I had conversations with my children and my spouse changes dramatically. You know, it's just because you realize, oh, there's a better way of having these conversations than what I'm doing. There's better approaches to this than what I've used. Yeah, I mean, because one of the things that we're faced with, especially working in the field that we're engaging with communities and doing this community engagement type work is that communicating with the folks in the neighborhood, that trying to bridge that gap that's been eroded over the years and how do, how do, how does one effectively do that? Because most times, walking into a, a situation like that, there are so many agendas on the table that it gets in the way of that effective communication. Where do you start with? I mean, is it just getting to know one another? Well, um, no, Charles. You start with training and learning the better tools on how to communicate. Um, ah. that's, but ah, okay. uh, but seriously. But seriously, because because if you look at those tools, you begin to realize what is the best way to engage in this conversation? What is what is going on in this particular situation and what do I need to do to be able to enhance this conversation? Because most of the things we do and the most of the ways we communicate tend to to polarize people. They tend to kind of draw, you know, lines in the sand. And so if you can learn ways to speak with each other and have some tools about how do we jump over those gaps, you make connections. So there's really no one, two, three step as much as it is becoming aware and practicing different skills and knowing when to use which skills when. Okay. Okay. So how did, how did that interact? An interaction with the the young women or the women. I'm not gonna say young. I'm making an assumption there. The women that came into the program. How did that uh, play into their turning their lives around or addressing the issues they needed to address? Well, it, it, there's just uh, so many different ways. I mean, you know, it just 
just to pick one particular topic, one of the things that, that, you know, we, that I teach about in the training is called understanding the difference between positions and interests. That was one of the concepts from restorative justice and mediation that transferred really well into a community development context. And so when we were talking to women and we would be hearing things that they were saying, we would have this understanding that, okay, what I'm hearing is a position, it's a demand that this person's making, but really what's the underlying need here? And recognizing and trying to determine what that underlying need is, because that's where the transformation needs to take place, not on the, the demands or the positions. And so, I mean, there's just a variety of different ways where we would pull those tools in and use them with the, you know, how we interact with the women that made a difference. You know, the restorative justice concept of accountability was huge for the organization, you know, really taking responsibility for harms you've done, especially when it comes to addiction. Um, a lot of the addicts that, that I know are very much victim mindsets and, and have a victim mindset. And so really helping them own the harm that they've done to others through their addiction is transformative for them. Wow. I mean, that's, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, you, you utilizing that, how, how do you, how how would one even know where to start? I mean, because it's like I'm looking at it and I'm hearing you. How how would you start that that transformative justice process? And when where would one start? Somebody's addiction or somebody's coming out of jail, a penitentiary. Where would they start? Because obviously, when they step into it, I mean, there are probably a lot of feelings going on. Okay, when you're saying where do you start, are you talking about the person who is? coming out of addiction or the person who's working with that individual coming out of addiction? Both. Okay. Um, well, this is going to sound repetitive, but you start by understanding what you're, what I'm even talking about. You really need to know what you really need to understand what these tools are. You really have to have a good idea of the differences between positions and interest and how to, and how to determine what people's positions are. And that's part of, that's part of what we do in the training is really practice that skill. And so once you, once you learn those tools, you know, it's when you're in those situations, it, that's why I said the two things that I hope people get when they come out of the training are both tools and the way they view the world differently. It's like they would, it, when you're in a context, if you're working with somebody coming out of addiction, you're hearing things that they're saying, you, you know, you're going to hear it from a different perspective because now you're going to be saying, okay, is that a, is that a demand they're making or is there something else going on here? And that changes what you end up doing with that person. And so, it, like I said, it's a, it's almost a paradigm shift in the way you view the work and that has to happen first. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Reconciliation circles. Why? Why a why a circle? Well, circles tend to be one of the uh, best models, restorative justice models that can be transferred into other contexts. Um, I mean, all of my background was victim offender mediation, which was one on one. It was one victim and one offender, and I mean, not all of it, but the bulk of the hours of experience that I had. And there's a place for that, you know. There's a place for that, but in a victim offender mediation, a you know formal mediation model like that. The only two people impacted or three people are the victim, the offender, and the mediator. And sometimes that's the appropriate process. But you can take those same principles and do a circle format, which involves more people, including everybody who's been impacted by that crime, not just the victim and the offender, but maybe family members, maybe law enforcement. And so all of the participants can be a part of that conversation. And Circles transfer out of the context of justice issues. I mean, circles can be used just in basic community conflict and, and community strategic planning. And because the processes work so well, you are able to accomplish a significant amount in a smaller amount of time. I, I don't understand. I mean, I understand why they work so well in some ways, but in other ways, I'm still completely fascinated by the process. In fact, when I was doing my training initially, uh, you know, there's a huge risk when you're doing mediations between victims of violent crime and their offenders. I mean, there's so much potential for things to go south, and 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 it's so unpredictable from a from a practical standpoint because you're dealing with human interaction, humans' emotions, human communication, and you can never predict what a person's going to say or where they're going to go. And the trainer said to us over and over and over, just 
if you if you if you you know get a sense of something, just trust the process. Just trust the process. And that those are the truest words. I mean, the, if you stick with the process, it just works. It's just the most fascinating thing. There's almost a mystery about it. How profound it is and how well it works and you've experienced it by what you were talking about with the mothers that you did a circle with it it's it's very very significant yeah i i know you at one time uh in, in a conversation you were speaking of uh how you went into uh the penitentiary uh a family a mother wanted to speak with the person who uh, killed their son uh and 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 that that victim uh, reconciliation process. Uh, I, I keep thinking about it, but I, I, I'm thinking about it in the context of how it can just go some way that you just can't imagine it going. How do you prep people for that? And, and just get, just give us an example of one uh, that you worked with. Well, one of the things I want to do, though, is clarify, it's not, that program is not designed for reconciliation. That's, that's just a victim-offender mediation dialogue process that allows okay. the victim the opportunity to speak to their offender. Reconciliation is not, an, is not a goal of that process, um, mm-hmm. nor should it be, you know, because, right. because, for one thing, they may never have known each other prior to the crime, and so there's nothing to reconcile. And, and that's a ve- that can be a very offensive word for victims as well. Now, that okay. doesn't mean in some situations that it could happen because sometimes there are family members that are involved and sometimes there is reconciliation, but that's just not the goal. The, the whole goal of that process, at least here in Texas, was to give victims a direct voice and the opportunity to meet with their offender face-to-face for the purposes of understanding, healing, whatever it was that the victim says needs they they feel they need by participating in the program and sometimes that's more information sometimes it's making sure the offender knows the harm that they've done you know there's just a variety of reasons victims do it but uh the the process that i was involved in is always and with violent crime it should always be victim initiated the victim should be the one that says i want to meet with the offender and then and once that's done, the case is open, and then a mediator is assigned like myself, and I would meet with the victim, and then I would go meet with the offender. And for the offender to participate, for one, they have to be willing. It's a voluntary process for both parties. And the second thing is, is the offender has to take full responsibility for the crime, and which is that accountability piece that I was talking about. Um, right. Because if they're not going to take responsibility for the crime, we don't do the mediation. I mean, because in in this process, the conviction's already there. The person's already in prison for the crime, and there's a lot of offenders who will say, I, who still say, I didn't do it, and and so we just can't do a mediation because there's no value in that. But if they say, yes, I committed the crime, and yes, I'll take responsibility, then there's multiple follow-up meetings with the victim prior to the mediation. Multiple follow-ups with the offender. We do a grief inventory. We do letters. We do support systems. That kind of stuff. And then after a three to six months, you know, preparation time, the case is staffed and evaluated. Would it be in the best interest of both parties to bring them to a face-to-face mediation? And if so, it's scheduled and we go to the prison. The victim goes to the prison and meets with the offender. Okay. For those in the listening audience, if you would like to ask a question or make a comment, uh, you can call in by dialing 516-387-1592. 516-387-92. Now, there were other things occurring at the um, at the home, the Perpetual Health Home, uh, while you were there. Uh, and some of that started evolving around giving the women there choices in terms of determining what their future might look like. Uh, uh, right. Economically, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think, and that's part of the reason why the two focuses of the business that I've started on are reconciliation and economic development, economic justice issues, because those are the two things that need to happen in community for Shalom. Those are the two biggest barriers that keep Shalom from happening, is that we're not we're not communicating effectively and reconciling with each other where there's been harm or where there's been, 
you know, different values. And the other is there, even when we were helping our women be reconciled with their families and different people, we realized it was great. They were doing all this hard work and it was transforming them on a very personal level, but they, that didn't translate into an economic situation. Uh, they still uh, were, un- they, they still didn't have this the uh, experience to get higher paying jobs. And so they were working in very low paying jobs and living in, in high stress situations. And so we created a social enterprise. Uh, it was called the center for peace because we just thought, well, let's try this, you know, because we got to do something. And so we created the center for peace, which is a, was, was a training center and it was designed to allow the women to work there and run it. And, um, so that they could get skills, you know, they'd be there full time, they would get skills. And then when they, after being there several months, they could put on their resume and they would have skills that they hadn't had prior to that and to go out and get jobs. And in its most simplistic form at the beginning, it worked beautifully. I mean, uh, you know, the women that would work there several months um, would go out, we saw an increase in their ability to earn their wages went up anywhere from 75 to 141% for the women who worked at, you know, at the Center for Peace for three to six months prior to going out seeking employment. Um, but then it, we were doing training, particularly around the around that stuff of mediation and restorative justice sort of things, and it was too linked to my background and my experiences, so we kind of transitioned it to where the women began developing their own training materials on transformation and how to come out of poverty and addiction and that type of thing, and when we did that, it took off. Um, and they started creating different curriculums for different industries. They, you know, they had an, they had a track for how to get a job in a professional setting, which is the acceleration program where you could work in an office or in a corporate setting. They had a track for, you know, getting higher paying jobs in the food industry called Restaurant Academy. And we had a social enterprise that they worked at and partnered with high-end restaurants where they could get hired upon completion. And probably the most exciting one was a track called Freedom Capital Ventures, where women could start their own small businesses. Um, And we launched three businesses here in Victoria through that specific model. Um, Stella Sassy Salsa, uh, Luna Juice Bar, which Summer owns and will be, she's one that's calling in in a little bit. And then Yummy Finds, which is the restaurant that houses the, uh, um, the Restaurant Academy training program. What what interests me here is it's it's having the uh, the participants in the program design the, the program itself. Uh, what was the impetus behind this? Who out of all the brilliance in this world came up with that concept? Well, <laughs> there there was two reasons. The two reasons that that happened. One of them, like I said, because I had a background in mediation, it was going to be we were doing all the training around mediation, and I was realizing. Okay, this business is based on my expertise, and I, if I wanted to do this for a living, that's what I'd be doing for a living. And if I leave, their business is going to collapse. And so we knew that we had to transition it to something that they could, that they could speak to themselves. And since they were experts at overcoming poverty and addiction, we felt like that would be the area that they should focus on because they know that better than anybody else. And and so that was what that was what shifted the, the the direction the the experiential part of it where they started developing the curriculum that came because prior to my, me working at perpetual help home i was an elementary school teacher and i was one of those learners that learned better through experience and a lot of my students were i mean we you know we can teach people things and the traditional classroom is kind of a lecture series where we speak and people listen. But when you have to figure it out on on your own, it tends to be much more concrete and it tends to last and you don't forget those things. And so, so from my teacher perspective, I, when, as we started shifting the work and the focus to the women, I kept saying to them, y'all need to figure this out. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. Y'all need to figure it out. You're smart enough. You can do it. You can figure it out. And, Sure enough, they did. <laughs> and they came up with things that was way better than anything I could have ever thought of, which even, about, which even you know, really kind of drove down the importance of that principle even more. And on top of that, not only did they figure it out, but in the figuring it out, they realized, I am capable of way more than I thought that I was. I didn't know I could write curriculum. I didn't know that I could teach people. I didn't know that I could write grants, you know. 
And so there was just no turning back at that point. So I know we've talked a lot about social enterprises and engaging uh, in those types of efforts. So was this all tied into that process too, with developing social enterprises within the context of, uh, of the perpetual help home and the community in general? Yeah, and, it, and I have to say, it all happened very organically. You know, it was just kind of like we 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 saw them doing this work when they couldn't get higher paying jobs, so we started this, this social enterprise, and we realized it wasn't a good model, so we changed it. Uh, and then we had one lady who wanted to start a business, and we didn't really have anything for that, and so we just said, let's just do that next. Um, and once we started seeing the success of what this was doing, we we – the process then began to be, okay, if this works this well, can it be replicated? And if it is, we have to have the language to tell people wh- why this works. What are we looking at here? Why is this working so well? Because it was happening so organically at the time. We didn't have a lot of thought, let's do A, B, C, D, you know, and these are the things we need. So we had to really dig in and see what is that's making this particular model so effective. And that's those are the elements that are built into the training that I do called power lift. Okay. Power lift. So that's the name I need to remember. Power lift. Yes. And why that name? Why, why power lift? What's the significance of that? Uh, that's the name that one of the ladies came up with at the time. Um, okay. You know, we were trying to figure out what would you, if you were going to do a training to help people create a social enterprise, what would it be? And I think it came from the fact that, you know, people are being lifted up and empowered. And so I, to be honest with you, that's what I'm guessing. I'm literally, Stella is the one that came up with the name. She said, I think we should call it power lift. And I was like, okay, sounds good. And the, after hurricane Harvey, we, the center for peace building was damaged. Perpetual help home was damaged. And so we had to, before I left the organization, the board and I met and we restructured and decided to really ensure long-term stability for the org because we lost one, two of our buildings. The Center for Peace uh, got absorbed into the programming of the job skills training at Perpetual Help Home, so they still do some of the elements, but not as much. And so the pieces that they aren't doing anymore is what, when I started my, with, with permission and, you know, well-wishing, have pulled out to use for the training in this business. And, and you know, Perpetual Help Home, if we ever do these trainings and people would like some of the women from perpetual to be a part of the training, that, that is always an element that we can include, you know, so. Sure. Well, since we're speaking of, of those wonderful women and I see summer's on the line. How are you summer? I'm great. Hi, thanks for having me on. Yeah. You know, I've heard so much about you and I've seen you in on the uh, movie screen on my <laughs> so I said, well, it's about time that we, we, we hear the real voice in another setting and find out what it was like in, in terms of uh, getting that business started and what you, where you've sure. been with and, and what brought you here to this point. So we're going to start with that. Just, just tell us about summer and where summer started and, and what brought summer to where we are at this point in time. Yeah, well, that's a podcast for a whole nother day because I could talk for two hours, but uh, <laughs> Carol will tell you. She's rolling her eyes right now, I can guarantee. Um, actually, I, I landed on the shores of Victoria, Texas, um, almost five years ago, um, and I got there uh, because I um, had a really hard time with drugs and alcohol, I have a, a long history with addiction, and um, was always real good at uh, building myself up and then destroying everything. Um, and so I ended up at Perpetual Help Home after years and years of struggling with crack addiction. And um, when I got there, uh, I, I really wanted to be involved with the organization and what Cheryl was doing. I thought she had a really, what was going on over there was really neat. And um, I asked her at one point if I could be involved. And um, she said, yeah, you can. Um, but I'm going to tell you how you can be involved. And uh, she gave me some projects and kind of let me do some some uh, office 
organizational kind of things. And um, we came to a point where we both agreed that it would probably be better if I moved out of the organization, that it just wasn't serving me, or I wasn't serving it, it wasn't serving me, whatever. I could have done bigger, better things away from the organization. And um, so I moved back to my hometown to be closer to my my son and my husband, um, who at the time were, my, those relationships were completely ruined at the time. They were completely destroyed. Um, and so I uh, moved back to Central Texas and um, started a business. And Perpetual Help Home, I've been in the restaurant industry my whole life, and um, most restaurants are toxic places for addicts and alcoholics and I really wanted to create a safe place for myself, but still be using the assets that I had. And so I started a juice bar and um, perpetual help home was a huge, huge part of that. They, um, Stella, who I'm sure y'all have talked about already taught me how to write a business plan. And um, I presented it in front of the um, leadership team there. And they gave me at nine months sober, they handed me a check for $5,000 which helped me get the right equipment to expand my business. And um, eventually they, um, after much success and paying the loan back early, um, they invested never in late. my business. And never late. Yeah, I never paid it late. Uh, always paid on time, you know, like got, did what I was supposed to do. I remember the day that I got the check, the lady at the bank said, um, well, here's your check for $5,000. And I looked at her and I said, I – I don't think you're supposed to give that to me. And the lady looks down at the check and she looks at me and she said, are you summer shine? I said, well, yeah, I am. And she was like, yeah, this is your check. So she hands it to me and at arm's length, I hold it out and I go, ma'am, I am a crackhead. And she kind of, the banker kind of like rolled her eyes and was like, get out of here. And I'm like, okay, what do I do with this check? You know? So I took it to Cheryl, of course, immediately. And, they helped me help dole it out for me. So, and now we, last year we did $500,000 in sales um, at our food truck. Uh, we had somewhere close to 15% profit. 15% of that was profit. Um, this year we're on track to do around the same amount of sales, but double our profit. Um, so yeah, that's where we're at right now. We have a food truck at Magnolia Silos. If you don't know what Magnolia Silos is, I don't know what country you live in. Um, and we also have a storefront. We've just recently opened a storefront on Austin Avenue in Waco, Texas. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Wait, what do you – you say something. Restaurants are toxic. For, uh, yeah. What, what do you mean by that? Um, well, so restaurant – the workforce in restaurants, um, there's a lot of requirements for working – more hours than you're scheduled and staying on longer than um, you're scheduled for your shift and um, being at the restaurant for as long as you can and overworking yourself comes along with um, other, other toxic behaviors. There's a lot of drug use in restaurants and also uh, camaraderie through alcohol. Alcohol is usually served in restaurants and so people drink it after they get off the clock or they're, out back smoking pot with each other or they're doing cocaine and mess with each other because you can stay up later and work longer hours. Um, as a restaurant manager, I was required to work 70 hours a week. Most of the time ended up working 80, you know, so, um, and always six days a week, sometimes seven. Um, and that's just not conducive with the lifestyle that I, that I promote now, which is a healthy balance, even though I feel like balance is kind of a dirty word, but a healthy lifestyle and with recovery included in it. Well, and I have to say, I have to say just for clarification purposes, I would say that restaurants are a toxic lifestyle for people with addictive behaviors. Uh, because, because if you are not uh, a person with addictive behaviors, you could work in a restaurant setting and, and it not necessarily be conducive to using drugs. Does that make sense? It does to me. Yeah. It, yeah. yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I thought it was interesting when she said uh, that being a toxic environment, and I kind of understood that, but I need a little further clarification on it. Uh, now, why juice? Why did you choose? 
Well, hold on. First thing. So that's a why yeah, do you, that's a really great Luna? Yeah. It's a really great question, and I get asked this a lot. And um, my answer to that is that I'm e- I'm either living a, the right life or I'm living the wrong life. You know, I'm either um, waking up early in the morning and working out and eating healthy, and um, you know, like 75% of my life looks healthy, organized, and the same. I'm a creature of habit. Um, or on the flip side of that, I am. Um, living in hotel rooms, smoking crack all day long, um, doing things for money that no woman wants to do, you know, like those are the two lifestyles I live. It's one or the other for me. And, um, so I, so I wanted, I wanted to have a job that would promote my healthy lifestyle and that I could, you know, I could work around, like I said, work around my recovery. Um, and that's what I've done is I've created a space for myself that is super conducive with, um, all of those things that I just mentioned, the healthy side of things. And I don't live like that 100% of the time. I think you heard me say about 75% of the time I wake up and go to work out on time and I eat healthy and do all that. But I also have, you know, I'm in New Orleans right now with five of my girlfriends and I'm maintaining my sobriety because that's not a choice for me, but I'm eating beignets and sleeping until nine o'clock in the morning. And um, I didn't work out. I went and ran, you know what I mean? But um, yeah. 75% healthy lifestyle, but 100% sober recovery lifestyle. Oh, wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that has to be that way. I have no choice but to be 100% sober because if I, if I went out and drank today, if I had one drink today, by the end of the night, I'd be smoking crack. That's my story. That's how the addiction, that's what addiction is. That's how it works for me. Um, I don't, and once I've taken a drink, I don't have a choice in how that's going to turn out. I'm, I'm going to go drink more and get drunk enough to walk over to the east side and buy crack. So. Right, right, right. And I think you well, also asked about the name Luna. Yeah, yeah. Did you you asked about that? Um, my Definitely. my son's name is Hagen Moonshine, the love of my life, and a super intoxicating human being, hence the name Moonshine. And um, <laughs> I I felt like he was the person who was harmed the most through my addiction. And so I wanted him to be the person that I honored the most. And so I named Luna Juice after him. Luna is the um, Spanish word for moon. And and that kind of gets to Charles when she talked about that he was the one that was most harmed by her addiction. That's, that's where the two worlds of restorative justice and economic development merged at Perpetual Health Home. That's that accountability piece that we really push women in, in the home with addiction to say, you're not the victim in your addiction. The, the, the victims in your addiction are those who love you and are having to live with a destructive lifestyle. And so, so Summer naming that after her son is just a testament to the power of restorative justice principles. Okay. So, Summer, okay. Uh, when you first, uh, when you struck out on the business, even after having the, the business plan and pitching it to the, uh, was it leadership resource team, I believe it is. Uh, right. What, what, what were you then? I mean, mentally, I mean, you knew you were going to make it or you were like, uh-oh, I have done this, man, what do I have to do? <laughs> I think I, I think I'm always overconfident on the uh, while I'm in the stables, and then once the the gates open, <laughs> then I'm like, oh crap, <laughs> what have I done? Um, so I, um, I had enough restaurant experience. I had enough experience. I, I didn't. I never felt that operationally I was going to fail. Um, and juice was like on a rise. Juice bars were starting to pop up everywhere around that time. And so I felt really confident that I was going to succeed. It wasn't until I was, you know, elbow deep in juice and had a food truck and was on at Magnolia Silos before I ever, ever thought that, oh my gosh, I might fail at this. And from that moment on, every morning I wake up with a little bit of fear that I'm going to fail. <laughs> so. So how do you get over that? Um, it is it, fear is a thing that I I just face head on and I barrel through it no matter what. I just continue to go. There are a lot of days that I'm just pretending 
that everything's okay. I mean, everything is okay. There's nothing, nothing's falling apart, but, um, but sometimes the fear is really gripping. And I just have to say to myself, this isn't what God created me for. God created me to be courageous and to trust him and to move forward, even when I am full of fear. And so those, sometimes I would look myself in the mirror and say, you, you asked for this, you prayed for this. Now go live out the glory of what God has created for you. Like literally have to look myself in the mirror and say that. So, because fear is crippling. It's crippling. Um, but I can't, I, I have other people's, um, God has entrusted me with other people's livelihood. And so I have to think about that whenever fear grips me is that we have to keep going. We just have to keep going. And I have to also throw in here, one of the things that Summer has done very, very wisely is she has created a strong network of supporters. She has people mm-hmm. that that she goes to when there are where she's facing those moments of weakness in her addiction and her business. I mean, she's got a huge network of people that she can that she can pick up the phone and call and she does it on a regular basis and and that's part of the part of her strength and the reason she's still sober. Yeah. And succeeding. Yeah, yeah. So, I agree. So, so you opened a storefront. Did you have to go back, obviously, and get some more money, or, or did you have enough in your profit that you decided that, okay, now I can open a storefront? Yeah, we didn't borrow any money to open the storefront. So we had um, one of our investors had a um, piece of property that he was going to develop anyway. He was developing part of it for another organization, and he said, we can, as we're developing this space, we can develop yours as well. Um, and then you'll just pay it out. You know, the, the development part of it will be paid out through the course of your lease. So we signed into a six-year lease. And so I've got six years that I have to pay. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a loan because I'm, I'm only obligated to it contractually. Um, but we'll be there for six years for sure. So how is it working out with your family since you're in this business? So um, that's actually like way more exciting than the business part of this. Um, I, after I moved back to Temple, uh, I told you I moved back. I didn't want to leave Victoria, just so you know. I really didn't want to leave. I wanted to stay in Victoria, and I wanted to take over what Cheryl was doing, really. Um, But uh, not that she wasn't doing it right. I just wanted to do it, you know. And um, she, she was not fond of that idea, by the way. But um, <laughs> I didn't want to leave. I wanted to stay. But at some and I was I was praying, you know, to God every day. Show me what I should do. Show me what. No, that's not what I was praying. I was praying to God. Here's my plan. Make this plan happen. That's what I was praying to God. Is here's what I want to happen. Can you hurry up and do that? And one day, and I kept running into roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. And one day, um, I just kind of threw my hands up and said, "Fine, God, what do you want me to do?" And it came to me as clear as day, you need to go reconcile with your family. And um, within 24 hours, I had an apartment and a job in the town that my son lived in. And the apartment was a mile from where he was living. So I moved back to that place the first night I was there. My son hadn't talked to me on the phone. He was really angry with me. And um, when the first night that I was back, he came and stayed the night with me. He didn't have a bed or anywhere to lay his head, but he wanted to be there with me, so he came and stayed the night. Eventually, my husband started coming around. It took a really long time. Um, the weekend, the week I went to get my check for Perpetual Help Home to start my business, my husband moved back in. Um, we reconciled our marriage. He moved back in. And then the next day, my son moved in. <laughs> my son moved back in. Mm. So the whole family's been back together since I had about nine months sober. And um, we're com- I'm coming up on five years. So that's been about, you know, a little over four and a half years. And, um, and our, marriage is our, our marriage is 100% reconciled. There's still hard days and there's still hard issues. And we have a marriage just like anybody else. We get on each other's nerves. But we've been through a life and death situation together. We survived a disease, a debilitating, hopeless disease together. And it's made our marriage so much stronger than it ever was. 
And I feel the same way about my son. Our relationship is 100% restored. We do fun things. I go to concerts together now, whereas we never could have done that before because um, I was tied to my drugs, you know. So, um, And they're both really, really proud of what I'm doing in business. They both brag about um, my business and what's going on there, and they talk about it a lot. And I do feel like my son feels honored. Um, by my business, and I do feel like my husband feels proud of the changes that I've made. So, wow. so w- going back to perpetual help and, and this whole reconciliation piece with the family, uh, any particular principle or ideal that would develop there at Perpetual Help Home that kind of <laughs> made this possible for you to, to enter into that world again? <laughs> There's a lot. Tell a story, a Summer. <laughs> Tell oh a story, Summer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I only have about uh, 10 minutes left. <laughs> um, Cheryl, I was refined by fire at Perpetual Help Home. I am the kind of person that goes into any place and makes friends immediately, finds out who the head honcho is, tries to manipulate them to be, I I just want to be friends because I completely want to get my way. And it's exactly what I wanted to do at Perpetual Help Home. I came in with a plan and I had it all written out. Thank God Cheryl was on vacation or something for a couple of weeks and she hadn't made it back, but I had this plan written out of what I was going to do. And um, she called me in her office one day to say, you know, like, um, I see, I saw the plan that you wrote. And Cheryl, is this a story you want me to tell? No, I was talking about the one about where we have that argument about the, uh, about, oh, about my mom. You taking, yeah, taking responsibility and owning your stuff. Okay. Okay. So anyway, either one Cheryl, of them is a good story. Yeah. Yeah. This is the one that impacted my life the most. This is the story that impacted my life the most. So I'll, I'll tell you this one. The other one is okay. quite amusing, but this one is the one I'll tell. So I had written out this plan, and Cheryl calls me into her office, and she sits me down and says, I've read your plan. Uh, I can tell that you're educated. And I'm like, oh, this, this lady gets it. You know, like she knows. She knows I'm smart. Um, and she was like, uh, and I can, you know, I can see that you've kind of had some history in your life where you've, you've had some good jobs and stuff like that. And um, she said, uh, who are you? And I said, well, I'm the person that gets – I get – I have – I get everything together. I'm the person who fixes everything. And he said, if you're the person who fixes everything, then why are you here? Like, why would you be sitting in front of me right now if you have your stuff together? Um, which really shook me. And I was like, excuse me? And she said, this is the way we do things at Perpetual Help Home. If you're going to stay here, you're going to do things our way. And this plan doesn't work. And in my mind's eye, the way that it happened for me, Cheryl will, will say that it happened a different way. But in my mind's eye, she ripped that piece of paper into tiny little shreds and threw it at me like snow. Like, <laughs> that, <laughs> that is really not what happened. happened. <laughs> that is not what happened. That is really what I happened. Did, <laughs> but in my, <laughs> to my I ego, did tell her to my that ego, it was. That's <laughs> so um, I, did, said, I did throw it away, though. I did throw it away. Yes, she did. And, and she said, if you, if you don't want to do things, our way, then you can pack all of your things and you can leave. And I stormed out of her office and I went upstairs and I packed all my stuff and I stayed for another four months. And I did everything they told me to do. Everything. Everything they told me to do. Um, Sometimes it wasn't easy to get me to do it. The story she's talking about is that I went in and fought with her for 45 minutes about how my, my mom had made me do, my mom made me act this way. My mom is the reason for my addiction. My mom didn't protect me. My mom didn't serve me well, all these other things. And Cheryl just looked me in the eye and said, I'm tired of your victim stance. Get out of my office. And I thought she was joking. And so I sat there and looked at her for a minute. And eventually she yelled at me. I said, get out of my office. <laughs> She was so tired of hearing me blame everybody else, not take responsibility for my own addiction. And it was one of those moments in life where I realized I could change the course of what was happening to me if I would quit blaming other people because I could never change them. I could only change myself. And I had heard that before. The only person who can change is you, blah, blah, blah. I'd heard all of that. 
It had never, ever, ever been screamed in my face from across the table from a person who I really, really had trusted and admired. And so when she said that to me, I stayed in my room for three days crying. Like it, it, it messed with me. It really, really messed with me. But it was a moment of clarity where I was like, oh, I have power. God has given me power. He's given me the power to do and, and act any way that, I, that is right for him, that glorifies him. And all I had been doing was blaming anybody that I could blame. If I could blame besides somebody, yourself. They, I had, besides me. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wasn't taking responsibility for any of my actions. And now that's something that I do on a really, really regular basis. Like, I am, I am one of those people that now if I harmed you in any way or if there was some responsibility that I had in something, I'm going to find what my responsibility was, and I'm going to come tell you, here is my responsibility in this situation. I'd like to fix it. Now that's how I live my life. It, and it, has, it catapulted me from a place where I could do nothing for myself into a place where God has given me the strength and the power to do all kinds of cool things. You know, now my husband and I run two sober living houses. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to mention that here or not, but, you know, I run a business. We have two sober living houses. I live a great, healthy lifestyle. I have more friends than I can count. Like, I can't count the amount of friends I can call. That support community, that's been something that I didn't have before because I was, I didn't, I was blaming everybody. Nobody wanted to support me. I might blame them for something, you know? So, Cheryl included. Cheryl, yeah, and Charles, I think one of the things that you can hear with Summer when she's talking about that in that moment when she realized that she didn't that she had to take responsibility and now she lives her life that way, that kind of goes back to what I was talking about at the very beginning, where I want people to have a a mental shift and they completely view the world differently now. And Summer completely sees the world differently than she did before. Yeah, yeah and that's important. Yeah, I and, mean, and, and live differently. Quick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well. Since you mentioned the sober living houses, uh, and yes, it's pretty fine to mention, uh, and and your business, is, are those the individuals that you are hiring? So we in our um, in our uh, mission statement, it does say that we um, want to hire at least twenty. We want at least twenty five percent of our staff to be in recovery from drugs and alcohol. And so we make that part of what, what is built into it. Right now, we, 60% of our staff is in recovery from drugs and alcohol, including myself and our general manager. Um, and my general manager did used to live in one of our sober living houses. Um, she is, uh, so we do hire women from the sober living houses. They had to have been there for a while and kind of proven themselves and have a track record. But we also hire people who are in recovery just straight, you know, they've been in recovery for 24 hours they used yesterday and they really need a place to come and kind of um, get their ground and get their feet wet. And we do hire people like that. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, in the next last two minutes that we have, uh, okay. what, what nuggets do you have to offer our audience and, and Cheryl the same to you in 45 seconds or less each of you, uh, uh, oh, each of us has 45 seconds? I'm sorry. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'll be quick. I'll be quick. Okay. Um, I think that the opportunity to help people who have been in recovery, they're a very smart um, a community of people, and take those risks. Like I would encourage people to take the risk on people, take the risk in hiring them and giving them good jobs and giving them loans and helping them build business. It's worked for me, and I've seen it work for other people. And for me, I would say build your arsenal, learn more skills, really look at, go out and find effective processes and tools that work and, and increase your capacity to, to, to learn more and make a difference. Good. Amen. Good. Uh, <laughs> well, Summer, it was, it, was, it was finally nice hearing your voice besides the big screen. On Thank the you. Um, and at some point when Cheryl comes this way, uh, I'm going to insist that you come with her. Uh, so yes, can, I would love that. I would love that. Yeah, we expand this conversation and, and get you guys in front of some other people that need to hear this whole story. Yes, so, amen. Uh, thank you, guys. And you guys thank have a great yeah, enjoyed it. the rest of the week. Love you, and, Summer. Uh, yeah, love you, Cheryl. All right. And yeah, ship so some bye. of that, that juice this way. So. Yes, okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> this has been another edition of Front Porch Conversation on Justice. Uh, tune in again next week at the same time at 1 o'clock when I guess will be Charlie Self with the Made to Forest Network. And we're going to talk more about economics and faith at that time. Uh, we thank our guests uh, for being with us today. And uh, we're looking forward to more continuing conversation on social justice, social justice, economic justice, and faith in the near future. Have a great week. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.